You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join pastors Ross Anderson and Brian Dwyer every Monday as they pull back the curtain on LDS history, culture, and theology. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org slash Mormonism. All right, Ross, well, news hit early this week about a hefty fine levied by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission against the LDS Church. So let's talk about the Mormon Church's billion-dollar investments. You know, a lot of people are just now learning about the wealth of the Mormon Church, but if you do a little internet research, and of course you can believe everything that you find on the internet, uh, it's interesting. I, I googled top 10 richest churches in the world and their net worth, and guess what? The Mormon church is number one on the list. Now, hold on, hold on. Don't every, Our listeners are like, no way, because that's what I said at first, too. So we're going to learn today that their net worth is about $100 billion. I think it's probably more than that. Number two on the list is the Catholic Church Vatican at $33 billion, okay? Number three on the list is the Catholic Church in Germany at $26 billion. So you can see what's happening here is is this list is splitting up the Catholic Church, and really, in fact, the number four on the list is Catholic Church of Australia. And uh, and so the three of the top four are the Catholic Church. Also on that list, by the way, Church of England at $9 billion, um, Church of Scientology at, at $2.5 billion, the Episcopalian Church at $2 billion, and then rounding out the top 10 Rosses, kind of drives me crazy is the Kenneth Copeland ministry. <laughs> Kenneth Copeland's ministry, their net worth is about a billion dollars. That's for a whole nother podcast. That's for a whole nother episode because that's really, Kenneth Copeland, of course, is kind of a prosperity gospel guy, which I think we might be talking a little bit about today, Ross, as we talk about kind of the Mormon church and how they look at money and how they do their money. Yeah, everybody has known for a long time that the, that the Mormon church has a lot of money, a lot of wealth, but nobody's really known how much because they've been really secretive about it. And, and we'll explain today kind of how then those numbers are derived and, and how they were discovered and so forth and what the meaning of this fine from the SEC is about. As a hefty fine for you or me, it's $5 million. But for, a, for an institution that has $100 billion in assets, it's kind of like jump change, it seems like. But... Uh, we'll delve into that. It's interesting the comparison that you make, you know, with uh, some major religious institutions that have assets of one or two billion dollars. And here's the LDS Church, which in the United States is only about two percent of the population. And globally, there might be 16 million members, but they're not all active by a long shot. And yet, per capita, the LDS Church is pretty well off. And it's interesting to explore why. Well, and I think the first answer, in order to really understand where did this money come from, first and foremost, it comes from tithing. So let's talk about tithing for a second. What is a tithe? You know, in the Christian church, how does it work? In the Mormon church, how, the, how does it work? Well, biblically, the tithe is literally just means tenth, right? So Mormons are expected to pay one-tenth of their income to the LDS church. Now, Christians... A lot of Christian churches talk about the tithe as well, as does our church, but very few, I would say very few Christians tithe in comparison to the amount of Mormons who do it. Ross, talk us through how it works in Mormonism and why so many people do it. 
Well, in Mormonism, it's really a expectation that is made quite clear. It's a commandment. So people, in order to um, have access, for example, to the temples, um, one of the questions you're asked in your temple worthiness interview is uh, whether you are striving to pay a full tithe. Another factor is that every year the active Mormons will meet with their local ecclesiastical authority and they'll be asked you know, directly and they'll have an opportunity to bring their accounts to catch up and make sure that everything is paid for. So it's enforced in Mormonism in ways that it's not enforced in, um, other, in other churches. And that has generated a lot, a lot of income for Mormonism, probably $7 billion a year. Yeah, think about that. $7 billion with a B. $7 billion a year is going out to the Mormon church. And the truth is the Mormon church doesn't work like most Christian churches. Mormon churches are really one organization, right, Ross? All that money essentially just goes to the one same organization. So for example, if you're if you're if you go to a Baptist church and you tithe to your Baptist church, that's going to go to your local Baptist church. Now, maybe a portion of it, a small portion of it, might go to the organization, the Southern Baptist or whatever organization, the denomination you're part of. But, but in the Christian movement, churches are mostly sovereign, and and the money goes stays right there at the local church. But that's not how it works with the Mormon Church. Ross, explain that. Yeah, everything goes upstream. Everything goes up to central. And then um, it's sent back down based on you know particular budget that each that each uh, ward has because the church at large will pay for some of the costs of building and maintaining those local buildings, but they're also paying for bigger picture stuff. They're they're building temples at an incredibly rapid rate around the world. There's like 114 Mormon temples in process right now around the world, and those are paid for out of the tithe. They have um, other church-wide structures. They have education. They, they own a couple of universities, and they have an education program for students, and all that's administered and managed from central rather than by local congregations. And so all of the overhead costs of running the church, all those things come out of tithing. And so, um, you know, there's, it's a pretty small portion that goes back downstream to the local congregations. Yeah, so how much of it is going to pay then for the staffing at a local congregation, how do, how does a, how is a local congregation staffed? And this might surprise some people to hear the answer to this. Yeah, about roughly zero. So the local congregation is all led by volunteers. There's no paid staff, and in fact, it used to be that they would at least pay a custodian. But now, uh, and you know, you use that that custodial position to maybe help somebody out in need or you know, someone struggling financially, and they'd hire them as the custodian. But more recently now, all of the members of the local uh, congregation are expected to take a turn every few weeks to clean the building. And so all this money's going upstream, and, and, you know, and they're still relying on all of this volunteer labor to get basic stuff done at the local church. So, so not much is going back down. Yeah, and really understanding the tithing culture and the expectations, it's important to really understand the news that came out this week. Because if, if you don't really understand what this means to people, I don't think you can even properly know what to think about this and how to think about 
um, the some of the hot water that the Mormon Church is in, and and Ross, the, even L, the LDS Church, you might have differing opinions, even from church members, on this news that came out. Yeah, and we'll we'll explore that later. But some members are quite concerned, and others are not concerned at all. And uh, there is some latitude for interpreting this event for sure. But um, let, let's explore kind of how this hundred billion dollar fund came to be in the first place and then some of the more recent issues or, or episodes incidents that have you know brought it to the public attention yeah because the LDS church wasn't always wealthy right in the 1960s and remember the LDS church is fairly new it I mean it, it, it's been around since the what 1840s 1850s somewhere in there right. And so it's not a very old organization compared to the Catholic Church like we were referring to earlier. In the 1960s then, so about 100 years, a little over 100 years into their existence, they started setting aside money from contributions, from their giving, from their tithing, for future contingencies. And then in the late 1970s, the investments estimated were estimated at around $1 billion. So that's, that's still pretty recent that they wouldn't have made any of those lists that we just mentioned right there. But then something changed in 1997. Ross, walk us through what happened then. In 1997, the church created an investment arm called Ensign Peak Investors. And it's actually a nonprofit. It's an arm of the LDS church. And and the goal of that was to to create an, an agent for them to manage their investments or you know a branch of their structure that would specifically manage their investments it started with about three people now they employ something like 70 people just managing all of this wealth that that the mormon church has generated they, they didn't go outside because they're concerned obviously the issue we're going to see later they're concerned about secrecy or privacy as you might say and so to work for ensign peak you have to be an active member in good standing and you and you have to sign non-disclosure agreements and there's only about four people at the top of Ensign Peak who really know the whole picture and so it's very siloed or segmented within the company so that if you're working on one area of investments managing certain funds you don't even know what's going on in other funds and these funds all came originally came from tithes of their members Initially, yeah. At some point, you know, the, the, the tithing, they, they were set, setting aside about maybe 10%. They were tithing their, their income, so to speak, to this. Uh, it's a good practice, right, to set mm-hmm. aside some money out of your, uh, for savings, for investment. So they're doing that. They're wise about that. Eventually, it all started from tithing. Now, at this point, I'm pretty sure that um, tithing money... Nobody knows how much of it is going into this now at this point and how much of it is just growing on the basis of, you know, interest and, and uh, investment gain. Okay, so the, the, what happens, though, is this rainy day fund that starts in 1997 ends up growing really beyond what anyone could have imagined. So in 2012, the LDS investments estimate, were estimated at about $40 billion. So that's a little over 10 years ago. They're at $40 billion. And now, as we've said in the news here, we see it's even more than that. So, so how did this whole thing get exposed, and what's the problem with all this? Well, you know, people have been making estimates of LDS wealth for a number of years, but the problem is, 
as a nonprofit organization and with the controls that they put into place, it's very, very hard uh, to have transparency. It's very, very hard to find out what is really going on with an institution like uh, the LDS Church with their finances. And so for decades, you know, it's been pure speculation. All the data has never been available. But what happened in 2019, a whistleblower report was filed with the IRS. So there's a guy um, who used to work for Ensign Peak. And David Nielsen, he was a portfolio manager. He filed the whistleblower report with the IRS, along with his twin brother Lars, who's not worked for Ensign Peak, but together they filed the report. So he had just left Ensign Peak at this point in time for various personal reasons. And on the heels of leaving, then he says to the IRS, look, there's a problem here. These people should be paying taxes. Um, the whistleblower report suggested that, you know, that there was um, money that was actually being used for co- commercial purposes rather than the charitable purposes established by the church with the IRS that should have been taxed. Now, that's a question that we can't really answer, and the IRS hasn't addressed it, at least publicly yet. But that's what caused these things to be revealed. Now, the whistleblower report is, is private, but the, the other brother, Lars, the second brother, actually then took that report and, um, and gave it to the Washington Post. And so then it became public in late 2019. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what was revealed in this filing. And again, this is going to really probably shock some people. It was shocking to me when I saw this. I'm still trying to process how I think about all this, by the way. But what was revealed is that, okay, like we've said, that the church's investment fund was worth as much as $100 billion, okay? Mm -hmm. $40 billion of that that was in U.S. stock. Stocks like, let's let's list out some of this, over a billion dollars in Apple stock. Mm-hmm. Over a billion dollars in Microsoft stock. I don't know how much a billion or more in Alphabet stock as well. Yeah, it, because they have two two classes of stock from Alphabet. Alphabet is the parent company of Google, and so you know they have two classes of stock that added up uh, to like a billion and a quarter. So they also have stock in Chevron, Visa, J.P. Morgan Chase, Home Depot. So again, this is this is the 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 organization. The nonprofit organization that the church created in 1997 started, this was the rainy day fund, is they're buying stocks, making good investments, right? Making really good, solid investments. And so this, this just, these investments just keep growing and growing and growing. But it's not just the $40 billion in U.S. stock. What else made the list in that filing, Ross? Well, they have a ton of real estate. Of course, they, they own the buildings and you know, all of the church property that people use for the church purposes day in and day out. But this real estate goes way beyond that. For example, they have uh, huge tracts of land in, in the Florida panhandle, um, which has been used for timber. And, and some of that in the next few years is going to be developed into housing and um, sort, of, sort of more lucrative investments than, than, than timber. So a lot of real estate around. Now, some of the real estate is used for charitable purposes. They have welfare farms that grow all kinds of products that they use for their welfare system. Where they, That's the system where they help out people who are going through financial difficulties. And so orange groves and wheat farms and all the rest, they own those things. Uh, 
and many other real estate investments. They own um, investments in prominent hedge funds, um, and, and we don't know what else. These are the things that were revealed in the whistleblower, um, but I don't know everything about that for sure. Nobody does because we, we have, they have other assets potentially that aren't managed by Ensign Peak. And so this, the triple whistleblower account only detailed the things that are managed by Ensign Peak investors. And so there could be other um, property and other assets as well. Okay, so what's the problem? Why did they get fined? What's the, what's the problem with an institution, an organization, a nonprofit organization, have owning, starting another rainy day fund organization that's also a nonprofit? What's the problem with all that? Well, the problem is is not really having the fund itself. There's nothing necessarily unethical or illegal about that. Now, some people have problems with it from an ethical perspective, but that's a different matter from the SEC. Why the Securities and Exchange Commission fined the LDS Church in Ensign Peak $5 million in penalties for, it's basically a reporting issue. The Ensign Peak failed to properly disclose its stock holdings and its investment holdings. The report from the SEC claims that the LDS Church went to great lengths to deliberately obscure their investment portfolio. Well, here's what Ensign Peak did. They created 13 shell corporations, LLCs, and they, they actually reported all of their money. There's a form called 13F that an investment company reports to the SEC what its, what its holdings are. And the reason for that is because it's in the public interest for everyone to know who's got what, you know. So um, a major player in who has a lot of investment in some major stocks could um, could game the market, and so the public it's a public interest to know. So what the uh, Insight Peak did, they created these thirteen shell companies, and and said each one of them is responsible for certain aspects of the whole larger portfolio, some more, some less. And each of those LLCs then filed their 13F. But Ensign Peak did not file a 13F. It just filed. So basically, you see 13 different companies reporting much smaller amounts of investment um, assets and income. And so the LDS Church was trying to avoid like people looking too closely at Ensign Peak because they know Ensign Peak is associated with the LDS Church, and, and they don't want people to look at Ensign Peak's 13F filing and see, oh, boom, you know, large billions of dollars in their funds. So they, they spread it out for the purpose of like hiding uh, from the public what their engagement was. Now, that's not illegal, but what, is, what was illegal about it is that each of those 13 shell companies did not have independent authority to manage those funds. They were all managed by Insight Peak through these other things. So it would have been legal if LLC number one, two, three, all the way through 13, not only had uh, invest those investment funds, but if they had independent authority to manage them. And that would have been just fine. But the SEC says, look, this, this is really nothing more than a ploy to try to hide from the public um, you know, the nature and extent of these investments. And so that's, the fine is essentially a, a fine for failing to report. 
Well, and you know, like you said, it might have been legal, but legal is different than ethical. I think, you know, we're not going to get into that here, but you know, even if they would have done all the things that were legal, there's still some questions about whether this is ethical, what they're doing. I mean, Ross, why, why the secrecy in the first place? What was the concern of the Mormon church with, you know, why did they go to such great lengths to make sure that this couldn't be traced back to the church? Well, the clearest answer, there's a lot of speculation about that, but actually the person who was leading Ensign Peak Investments um, in 2020 is quoted in the Wall Street Journal article. He's quoted as, as saying that this secrecy was out of fear of the church that all these assets might discourage members from paying tithing. You know, if I'm a tithe-paying member and I look around and I see, God, the church has a $100 billion, you know, maybe I might slack off a little bit and say, well, they don't really need my money, um, you know, which may be true. But the church didn't want to encourage people to stop paying tithing. Tithing is such a big deal in their culture. And it's honestly, from an outsider perspective, tithing feels like a way to control church members. And so the church didn't want to undermine um, their tithing system. Let's just go back to tithing for a second, now that people have more context for this. So many LDS will offer their tithe-paying testimonies. And specifically when paying a tithe was a, was a sacrifice and how God provided. Now, I, you know, we, we do that at we our, do that. in our churches as well. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with, with that. But it, it can cross the line into abuse, can it? And this is, this is kind of what can tend to happen in more legalistic churches, not just the Mormon church, but even legalist, more legalistic Christian churches, even churches like what we mentioned, Kenneth Copeland, like his, his whole philosophy, this you know, wealth and health, prosperity gospel is not biblical at all. And so these kinds of organizations can, can corrupt and abuse, and that's that's one of my concerns. If I was a Mormon, that's one of the things I would say is, is there something going on here when somebody is being counseled to take out a second mortgage in order, in order to tithe, right? And yet we have $100 billion in the coffers. By the way, just a side note on that, it's an interesting cultural difference that when, when Mormons give their tithing testimonies, um, it's usually their... their sort of praising the principle of tithing. Look, I obeyed the principle of tithing, and uh, I had enough. Whereas I think in our culture with, with, with Christians, um, it's about God's goodness. It's not about the principle of tithing. It's about God was faithful, and God, God provided, you know. And I, th- I think they would say that that was true, but the way it comes across in how those stories are told, it's the emphasis is a little bit different. But yeah, there's plenty of anecdotal stories in Mormonism. A lot of people that I know even have experienced this, where the tithe becomes so important that um, families that are really struggling, who, you know, realistically that I would say they, they probably need to pay down some bills first, or, or they probably need to feed their family first, um, you know, are encouraged or you know, even um, pressured to take some some measures like taking out a second mortgage or like hours and hours of extra work or whatever in order to pay that tithe. And so it becomes so important 
that in many cases, not always abused, but in many cases it is. And so, yeah, you're wondering, well, why does, why does that happen when there's all of this uh, money that's available? So, Ross, how long did the, did, did the Mormon church practice this? Like, was this, was this just like one year? I think this, the issue at hand came out in what, tw- the whistleblower was 2019. So was this in 2019, 2018, 2019, and that's it? Like, how long had they been doing this? Yeah, for about 20 years. Now, the, the system of LLCs developed over time. Uh, the first one was set up um, in, I believe it was 2005, and then 2011, another one. It began to multiply from there, but th- they were still doing it. And, um, you know, there's one situation where the first uh, they set up an LLC for this purpose, and the person signing the disclosures on the, LL- on the 13F form was a um, employee of the church who could be found in the church direct church employee directory, and so they realize, oh, that that exposes the church to being found out, and so they they changed that whole thing, and um, and so cover you know covered up those connections over time. So you know, roughly twenty years, just short of twenty years, the church has been doing this. Now, as soon as the whistleblower report came out, they've been they've been doing it the right way, um, the required way for the last you know, um, several, I don't know how many quarters, it's a quarterly report. So ever since 2019, so the last three and a half years or so. So what was their latest SEC filing then? Uh, 44 billion. And what did that, what did, so what is that speaking to? What is that reporting then, 44 billion? Well, I don't know all the investments that have to be listed on uh, Form 13F. I'm not, you know, a tax professional or, anything like that, but it, but not all investments are required to be disclosed by law. And, um, you know, so it, it doesn't reflect the church's total holdings, um, again, in, in all of their possible uh, forms of income, whether it's, I'm not sure whether overseas holdings are, are required to be reported on that form. I'm not sure whether or not there's other investments outside of Ensign Peak. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what the picture is. We have a clearer picture than than ever did before, but it's certainly more than forty four billion, and as much as a hundred billion. And remember, we're only talking right now. We're only talking about the SEC in the United States. So the church's finances are actually under scrutiny in Canada and Australia, and we're not even covering that. Right. Yeah. But let for for. For at least for now, Ross, let's just finish by kind of processing this from the vantage point of what members think. What a, you know, if I'm a if I'm a Mormon, and I'm tithing, how, how do they process this? Well, a lot of members don't have a problem with it. You know, I've been uh, this week since this news came out. I've been trying to look at some of the message boards and and. Uh, blogs and so forth on the internet where LDS people have been interacting about this. And a lot of them just don't see it as a problem or they'll defend the church no matter what. There's certain people who are going to just defend the LDS church no matter what they do. Some people said, this is kind of like uh, getting a traffic ticket, you know, for speeding. And so they they say, this is really a negligible thing. And, um, you know, the SEC finds Probably 5% of companies every year get this kind of fine. 
Well, that puts you know the LDS Church in the 95th percentile um, for violations, and it's not like quite like a traffic ticket. It might be like having a speeding ticket year after year after year after year for 18 years. So, so maybe it is an ethical or an integrity issue, but a lot of Mormons don't think so. Now, there's a perspectives going around that. You know, the church relied on lawyers, and their lawyers didn't really understand the law. The law is really complicated. The security laws are, you know, difficult, and they're they're uh, convoluted. And so it's not really the church's fault. It's the lawyer's fault. Well, that certainly would be laughed out of court if you took that into, you know, into the court of law. And it's not that complicated. There's two requirements that you have. You know, you file the form, and that you're that the that the company has control over the assets, and they clearly violated the second of those. You know, so some people say are saying, oh, that LDS Church leaders, the Quorum of the Twelve, and the First Presidency, they're not responsible because all these decisions are made by Ensign Peak, and um, Ensign Peak was fined four million. The church was fined a million in this fine because the SEC report made it clear that. Um, these LLCs could not have been set up without authority given to Ensign Peak by the highest leaders of the church. So the SEC report implicated the first presidency of the church. Somebody knew what was going on. I've heard the argument to say that, oh, the church has a right to be secretive and it's helpful for them to be secretive because it's a big player in the markets. They have, you know, again, a billion dollars of Apple stock or whatever, uh, the church didn't want to create these big market swings. But these filings are quarterly. And so it's like the filing is going to take place 45 days after the end of the quarter. And so that's not going to affect the market on a day-to-day basis. And then others have said, I, I saw this quote, that the church didn't want to be a public about this because they didn't want individual investors to mimic the church's investment strategy. Like I, I know a lot of faithful members might go like, oh, the church's investment strategy must be inspired by God. We're led by prophets. So I should invest in what they invest in. Now, obviously, individual investment strategies are different from you know someone with this size of a portfolio, but that seems to me like, like it's just a dodge from the real issue. The point is a lot of LDS people don't see a problem at all for various reasons. Okay, so that's one, that's one group of people in the church, people who are just going to defend the church, which, you know, it's respectable. I get that. I'd, I, would, I would hope that in our church that the instinct, the first instinct for members of our church would be to say, well, there must be a good reason for this, okay? But there are also some members of the church who have raised legitimate questions and critiques. What are some of those? Well, several of them. I mean, some of the critiques have to do with the existence of this fund, not necessarily with the SEC fine. And so critique number one is like what all this money could be used for in, in spite of um, this overall wealth. Again, we kind of touched on this before. The church is still pretty heavy handed about asking members to do more and do more. And that tithing, you know, kind of that manipulative collecting of tithing. Again, that's like what church members are asking, well, wait a minute, you know, this seems like the church is not honoring its members. And and also, the church spends very little proportionally on caring for the needy. 
Now, they'll, they'll run it up the flagpole. It's good PR for them. They might have, I saw one report that says they, they spent a billion dollars uh, in the last decade. But I saw the, a more accurate report pro- probably is, it's hard to tell again, but since 1985, they've averaged about $60 million a year. Now, to you or me, that's a ton. For our church, that's a ton of money. But if you, if you take $60 million a year compared to annual tithing of $7 billion and compared to the annual investment growth rate, um, they estimate it at about 7% per year for that $100 billion fund, then $60 million a year is really a drop in the bucket, and it could be argued that that's really stingy. And so critique number one is, look, we have all this money and the church isn't really using it uh, for things that matter. You know, Mitt Romney quipped, I saw a quote from him. He says, I'm proud of my church. They don't have a rainy day fund. They have a rainy decade fund. And honestly, maybe a rainy century fund, really. The second critique is what the money is actually used for. What it's, first is what it's not used for that it could be used for. The second one is what the money actually is used for. Uh, $1.4 billion of the, uh, has been used to create the City Creek Mall in, in Salt Lake City. Um, and $600,000 was used to bail out the Beneficial Life Insurance Company, which is a, was owned by the LDS Church. So there's $2 billion right there for commercial purposes, for two, two church-owned commercial enterprises. And so, so some people are going, wait a minute, uh, the church's fund, there's, you put those two things together, there's so many things that the church could use the money for that would make a difference, and yet they're investing in, in commercial projects. So that's some of the crit- criticism. You know, the next critique is really for someone, it, you don't have to be Mormon to have this critique. It's, and here it is, that the LDS church should pay taxes, or they should lose its tax-exempt status for using contributions for commercial purposes. Now, again, that's a broader question. We're not going to dive into that. That has, you know, ramifications with taxes and things like that. But that is probably the first question most people listening to this podcast who have nothing to do with the Mormon Church, you know, would be asking is, wait a second, this Ensign Peak is a nonprofit corporation, and they have— have a hundred billion dollars worth of investments in for-profit. I don't understand how that even works. Yeah, this is a tricky one. Tax law is tricky for for nonprofits and charitable institutions, and the church does pay taxes on a lot of its commercial enterprises. So, like City Creek Mall, it's a part owner of City Creek Mall. Well, it's paying taxes on that part of it, as the law requires um, for for nonprofits that are that are involved in for-profit. Um, businesses or business arms. The the big question um, from one question I've seen at least raised from a tax perspective is that whether the tax law was really involved, really, um, it's really to encourage churches to spend their money on charitable purposes. But there's all this money sitting in the bank that is not being spent on anything. It's not being spent on charitable purposes. And the argument is that the tax laws were never designed for um, institutions just to hoard, you know, gobs of money. And so that, but that's a question that's kind of beyond, way beyond my pay grade. Well, mine too. But this last one, I think, is the main one that I would be asking if I were a Mormon. And I know some Mormons are asking this. It's the, it's the last critique we'll talk about. And it's, it's just about the idea that they were hiding the actual amount 
I mean, it, uh, let's think about Ross, a temple recommend question. In order to in order to get your temple recommend, which is the card, uh, is it a physical card, Ross? Yeah, it's a physical know. card, but it's basically your access pass. It's your access pass to the temple, which is a big deal, which by the way, is a big deal for all of this. That's one of the reasons I think they're building so many temples is because in order to have a temple recommend card, you have to be a tither. You have to verify that you're a tither. So the more temples they have in the world, the closer you are to a temple, the more, I would say, the more pressure you would feel to do your tithing so you can have a temple recommend card. That's Mm -hmm. for a whole nother thing. But my point for now is the temple recommend question, one of the questions you have to answer in order to be worthy to go into a temple is, are you honest in all of your dealings? So that seems to be a real problem when you're thinking about this from the big picture. Right. And so, you know, I mean, they'll hear honesty a lot from the pulpit, from general conference talks and so forth. And here in the, in the temple recommend question, it's a, it's a big topic in the church in terms of their moral compass. But, you know, what, so what is honest? The church didn't flat out lie and fill out the forms incorrectly. But, you know, you, anyone would argue that, you know, kind of withholding information is a form of deceit. Um, so, you know, that's so that's like it feels hypocritical. It, it feels like for, to many, some of the things that people are writing in responses to blogs and comments on websites and stuff like that are feeling like that this undermines the credibility of the apostles and prophets. You know, and, and the church claims that it that its guide its use of money is guided by prayer and by revelation. So wait a minute. So you can you're saying that actually God directed you to be deceitful or to hide the truth? But the fact is that they were deliberately trying to evade an applicable law in order to shield, I think, shield their reputation. Or, you know, I think the insider perspective is like, we don't want people to stop paying tithing. But I think I think the Mormon church has always been very sensitive to the reputation it has in the larger society. And I think that the question of reputation is, oh, what will people think of us if they know we're sitting on this huge cow, cash cow? And, um, you know, that, that may be a negative in, in the American public. And so, you know, hiding the actual amount creates questions about integrity and um, the ethical framework, especially when that honesty, you know, banner is, is, uh, is run up the flagpole uh, so much in the Mormon church. So one more question, Ross, then. How has the church responded to this? What, what have they said about all of this for people who maybe aren't really keeping up on this in the news? So the SEC released this report, but it's the culmination of a longer process. There's a process of negotiation between the SEC and the LDS Church. And so the LDS Church, in the, in the negotiation process, then the result is they say, we neither agree with or deny the um, factual claims of the Securities and Exchange Commission. But on, in another place, uh, in a place where they, they responded to the public, they said, they, they said, we regret the mistakes that we've made. That, that's as far as they've, they, they're ever willing to go in terms of um, taking culpability. Uh, but, but to express regret for mistakes made. Um, and then they've said, we're not going to answer any more questions about this. This is a done deal. We're moving on. Um, you know, we consider the matter closed. Those are their public statements. 
but, but this wasn't exactly a mistake. This was a deliberate strategy to circumvent requirements that are put into place for the public good. So, so they're not admitting much of anything. They're just giving a nod to, you know, kind of like, oh, mistakes were made, that level of apology. And then they're saying, we're just moving on. Uh, nothing to see here and trying to re- divert the attention of the church and the public, its members and the public, you know, away from the whole deal. Well, that's what we have to say about the church's billion-dollar investment that's just recently hit the news. Why don't you think about it? Talk about it. And uh, you can make up your own mind. Again, if you're, if you're in the LDS church, if you are a Mormon, and this really is causing you, maybe this is just one more brick for you that, where you just say, I don't, I don't know if this is true. I just encourage you to continue to investigate. You can find more at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. And don't forget, join us next time as we cover another topic right here on the podcast. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.